My text this morning is from the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and I'll begin reading at verse 15. Verse 15 begins, Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap Jesus and what He said. And they sent their disciples to Him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they marveled, and leaving Him, they went away. The title of my sermon this morning is God and Caesar. Perhaps a more uh, sensational title might be God and the IRS. Now I know it's a long time till April the 15th, and I don't want to spread any gloom and doom around. Somebody's noted that that April the 15th is not only the income tax day, but it's the day that the Titanic was sunk and Lincoln was assassinated. One bloke said that you might not agree with all the agencies of the government, but you sure got to hand it to the IRS. And that's the truth. Or as someone said, sure, we're going to have with us always death and taxes, but at least death doesn't get any worse. And I think it was Arthur Godfrey who said, I don't mind paying taxes. I take great pride in that. He said, the only problem is I think I could be just as proud for half the price. God and Caesar. Well, I suppose that rendering unto Caesar has always been with us. It was in the days of Jesus. Let me give you some background to this text. The Pharisees are really concerned about the growing popularity of our Lord. And rightfully so, they saw Him as a threat to their orthodoxy. And so they were always trying to catch Him or to expose Him as a fraud, a charlatan, or as a revolutionary who had set Himself against the Roman government. And they used their disciples to do that. And one day they sent their disciples to trap Him, and they must have thought they had a perfect ploy. They came to Him and they... They begin with high-sounding flattery. Somebody said, if somebody's patting you on the back, it may be just that he's trying to determine where to stick the knife. Well, that was true with the Pharisees. They were patting him on the back, but they were trying to find a place to stick the knife. And they said to him, Jesus, we know that you tell the truth as God wants you to tell it. Now let's get your opinion. Is it right to render to Caesar taxes? Now, what's Jesus going to say? How's He going to respond to that? Is He going to play to the crowd that's there? If so, He's going to get a tremendous following from then on. But to do it is to set Himself up directly in opposition to the Roman government. That would be dangerous. Or is He going to tell those people, no, you shouldn't pay taxes. You should start a revolution against the Roman government. To do that would be, would be to gather this tremendous following of people To do that would be rather to alienate all those people who were following Him. And so 
The Pharisees could not lose, and Jesus could not win. But Jesus was pretty smart, and he understood their ploy, and so he asked for a coin. And with that coin, he, he spoke the most used analogy in the Bible. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. Actually, most of us do not have a problem this morning with rendering to Caesar. The truth is we don't have any choice in the matter. Not long ago, a young son of a U.S. congressman was convicted of income tax evasion. And the judge was going to show no mercy. He was going to throw the book at him. And in his sentencing speech, he said this, Our tax system is based upon voluntary compliance. Therefore, we're going to send a message to every tax cheater in America. The thing that's always puzzled me is that if the tax system is based upon voluntary compliance, how could you ever be guilty of tax evasion? How could you ever, how could you ever cheat on your income tax? Voluntary compliance? You tell that to your IRS agent the next time he audits you. Now, it's true that if the government feels that your house is in the way of the new Superlane Highway and they want it moved, you better start finding some place to move. And if Congress reenacts the draft, young men, you better pack your duffel bags because whatever Caesar wants, Caesar gets. And most of us don't have any problem with that. Most of us are willing to pick up the tab of the government, within reason, of course. And most of us, even though we make jokes about the government, we're proud of it, and we wouldn't change it for any government in any nation in the world. It's the best. As a matter of fact, most people don't have any problem rendering to Caesar. But for many Christians, rendering to God is their greatest spiritual problem. I read not too long ago about a survey a man took. He, he interviewed hundreds of church dropouts, and he was asking them, why did you people drop out of church? Do you know what the number one reason given by these people who had dropped out of church? The number one reason was that the church talks too much about money. Now, I know that's a rationale for some people. It's a cop-out. But underlying, underneath most of us is this basic spiritual problem of rendering to God. What is God's? I want to make a prediction this morning. I hope I'm wrong. I'm probably right. My, my prediction is that giving to God is going to be an increasingly lower priority with most Christians in the days ahead. And the reason I'm going to make that prediction is because of two things. Because we live in an increasingly materialistic society. It sure is hard to make the mortgage payment on that dream home with the interest rates like they are and two car payments and buy all the toys and gadgets that we Americans are, are used to having and give to God at the same time. I heard about a little, about a little boy who started, who started off to Sunday school. He had two quarters. One quarter was to give in Sunday school. The other quarter was for an ice cream after Sunday school was over. On the way to church, one of the quarters fell into a drainage grate, through a drainage grate, and was lost. The little boy lifted his face to heaven and sincerely said, Well, God, there went your quarter. 
Somewhere along the way in our materialistic society, what we give to God has fallen through the grates. And the second reason I make this prediction is this, is because there is something intrinsically seductive about money. The more we have, the harder it is to give. It's like a drug. It can enslave you the same way as cocaine can. And I heard about a man who was starting his business. He was young and idealistic and deeply committed. And he came to his pastor one day and he said, I'm starting my business and I want to pray with you. I'm going to dedicate one-tenth of all I receive to the Lord. And they made that prayer. He prospered. He was back after a while. He made a commitment to 20% of his income, got up to 40%. He was successful, maybe because he was just ingenious, maybe because God was blessing him. I don't know. But he was, he was making this money and he was investing in all these investments and he would stretched himself so thin. He came back to his pastor and said, Would you go with me into your study and let's pray and ask God if he can release me from my promise? And the pastor said, You know, I don't think that it would be right for me to pray that God would release you from your promise. But I will pray with you today that God will shrink your income down to the place where you can keep of possessions. And not one time did he ever say that it was wrong to own things. But he did warn us that we must be vigilant lest things own us. I tell you, the worship of mammon is the most practiced religion in America. And even some of our most noted religious leaders have recently bowed down and kissed the feet of this idol. We need to learn the lesson that John D. Rockefeller, the senior, learned. He rode the great American dream to success. At the age of 23, he was a millionaire. At the age of 50, he was the richest man in the world. At the age of 53, he contracted a disease, caused all of his hair to fall out. His, eyelid, his, uh, his uh, eyebrows and uh, his eyelashes fell out. And even though he was the only billionaire in the world at that time and could have anything he wanted, he could only digest crackers and milk. He became a shrunken mummy. His friends said he never smiled, he couldn't sleep, and life meant nothing to him. And one night while he was tossing on his bed trying to get some sleep, he came to grips with his life. He decided in the morning, I'm going to live by the principle of giving rather than getting. The next morning, he started into motion the process of giving his riches away to the needy. The Rockefeller Foundation was established. And through that foundation, millions of dollars went to research in hospitals and missionaries. And this man who at age 53 was told that he would have less than a year to live, lived to the ripe old age of 98. Life he found. Because he learned the principle of giving rather than getting. The worship of mammon is for many of us a deadly spiritual problem. The more we get, the harder it is to give. And the more we own things, the more we're tempted to allow those things to own us. In the movie, Oh God, it was set forth, and I'm not sure about this theology, but it was set forth that the reason why God didn't give Adam and Eve clothes 
was because if they had clothes, they'd want pockets. And, and if they had pockets, they'd want money. The point is this, hear me now. The point is this, that sometime, are you listening? Sometime we have to make a decision. Do we really worship God? Is He really the God we worship? Is the kingdom really first in our lives? Is Jesus Christ really Lord? And I'm telling you, when we make those, those, that decision, when we come to that decision, every other decision concerning the use of our possessions is easy to make. Let me tell you something. When God is first in a man's possessions... It's just an affirmation that God is first in that man's life. And it doesn't matter what excuses we use or the rationale to which we acquiesce. If God means anything to you, He's going to be first in your possessions. Case closed. I heard the greatest testimony I've ever heard on stewardship not long ago. It was a testimony by a young, single, married, a single, unmarried, uh, well, that's single, isn't it? It was a, it was a testimony of an, of an unmarried mother, working mother. And she said, we were going through this stewardship program in our church, and she said, frankly, she said, I was getting kind of sick and tired of all the sermons I heard on stewardship. She said, what I, how I interpreted that was, the preacher needed a raise, and he was up there making us feel guilty if we didn't get it to him. And she said, all those people that came up there and gave their testimonies about tithing, she said, they were people that I envied. She said, I, I would think to myself when they get it, they don't have the problems I have. If they had my problems, it'd be a different story. She said, I resented them. Saturday morning came, and she said, me and uh, some of my friends had planned to take a little trip, take our kids to the state fair. She said, I really couldn't afford it, but it wasn't my kids' fault that they didn't have a daddy and they had a right to have a life like other normal kids and go to the fair. And I could make some sacrifices and I, I decided I would. So we went to the state fair and said, we got in the gates and said, I bought them a wad, a handful of tickets to use in the rides. And said, we bought foot-long hot dogs and cotton candy and souvenirs and we threw rings for teddy bears and all that good stuff. She said, I spent about $25 a piece on my kids that day at the fair. He said, I couldn't afford that, but it wasn't their fault that they didn't have a daddy and they had a right to have the things that other kids have. Sunday morning. She said, my kids came to me for their offering, for the, for the offering in Sunday school. He said, I dug down deep in my purse and found a quarter. He said, just as I dropped that in their hand, God spoke to my heart. So I didn't have to have a preacher trying to make me feel guilty. God did a job on me. said, God said to my heart, now listen, said, God said to me, you know what you're telling your kids? You're telling your children that fairs and ferris wheels and foot-long hot dogs are more important than the Father in heaven. And he said, I made a commitment that day. I made a commitment that morning before I ever went to church that I was going to begin to put the kingdom first, and I was going to worship God as God. Let me give you some gory details. 
22% of the people who make up the congregation of First Baptist Church Durant support 94% of the budget. That's the gory detail. There's an interesting observation in John Wesley's writings. John Wesley had an enviable problem. He, 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 had, he had submitted himself to a very, very austere lifestyle. Christ was first, Jesus was Lord in his life. And, and he saw how that material possessions would, might encumber his ministry. But he was such a great writer that his writings made him very prosperous. And knowing that, he made this statement. Listen to this powerful statement. I do not see how it is possible for any revival to continue. Religion must necessarily produce, produce industry, and these cannot but produce riches. And riches increase, as riches increase, so will pride, anger, and the love of the world. Do you see the beautiful irony of those words? This is what he was saying. He said, when, when people make God first in their possessions, then revival comes. Revival comes to a church that makes God first in life. And when revival comes, people become more responsible. And when they become more responsible, they become more successful. And when they become more successful, they become richer. And as they become richer, they begin to feel the pull, the intrinsic seduction of money. Fantastic observation. Now the point is this. I believe that this church has experienced somewhat, in some ways, in some measure, revival in the past. And this church has been blessed. And the result of that blessing, because we have become responsible, is that we have become indifferent. And we have allowed our indifference to bleed over into our response in giving. That is, many of us. And the question has to come, is God first in our life? Can I get by by giving Him the leftovers? Or does He deserve more than that? One last thought, please. A wise person is a person who sees that he is a temporary steward of all that he owns and that ultimately everything belongs to God and must be returned to him someday. Now that's what he was talking about when he, when he used the analogy of the, of the coin. Now you may never have noticed this before. I'm going to give you something new. When he brought that coin in there, brought that coin out and used it as, a, as an analogy, this was the question. Whose inscription is on that coin? They said Caesar's. The point he was making was, well, that money really belongs to Caesar. He just loaned it to you for a while. If Caesar gets ready to call back every coin, cancel the monetary system. He can do it, and you're left out with anything. That's the, that's the point. Now, now what you, you say, wait a minute. I, I, I've earned everything I have. That's right. But if the government decides this morning that, they want to, that, it, that it wants to cancel the monetary system, that money you have in your pocket or purse is worthless. In fact, it's just loaned to us to use. Now, follow this carefully. In whose image are you made? You are made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means that everything, among other things, it means that everything that a man possesses ultimately is God's. And that God has allowed him to use it. 
but that it will ultimately be returned to Him. Now, I want to break that down just a little bit. Everything we possess, everything we have, is loaned to us and we're stewards of it. As the black man gave the definition of stewardship, a steward, he said, is a person who takes care of the boss's business to the end of the line. He's just given it to us to, to, to manage. And we're responsible for it. And accountable to God for it. And that means that we're just kind of in this partnership with God and He's, he's, he's allowed us to have these possessions and, and He's in partnership with us and He wants us to use them to give Him maximum glory, not for selfishness. I heard about the concert organist who was doing a concert, touring the country and, and, and doing this concert on, these old, on an old-fashioned pump organ. You know, it's got the bellows in the back that you pump air into. And, one, and so, she, so he hired this young man to be the bellow pumper or whatever you call him. He's in the back pumping the bellows and the organist was playing. And one night after it was over, the, the young man was so elated over the concert, he said, man, we did it tonight. We did great. And he said, what do you mean we? I was the one who did the concert. Well, the next night the hall was packed and the organist started to play and he pressed down on the keys, not one sound. Again, he... Then he realized that the bellow pumper wasn't pumping. So he whispered, pump, pump. And the guy in the back of the organ said, say we. Now the truth is that we're in this thing together and that God has given us these possessions, loaned them to us. We're stewards of them, but we're in it with Him and we better use them as He intended for them to be used. It's a we proposition. And it means that one day when the bottom line is drawn, the ultimate accounting will be that I've got to answer to God for what I've, how I've used them. Someone told a story about George Truitt finished a revival in a little West, in West Texas church, morning service. He preached on the subject, you are not your own, you're bought with a price. After the service, a wealthy West Texas rancher came to him and said, I want you to go with me this afternoon, I need your help. They went out and looked over his spread, canyons down before them, cattle and, 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 and property. And the rancher said, I want us to pray. I want you to have a prayer for me of dedication. I'm going to dedicate all this to God and tell him I'll be a manager of it. And when Dr. Truett finished his prayer, that man continued to pray. And Lord, I want to give you today my wayward son. That night, George Truett said, that that wayward son was saved in the service. The point is this, that when we give back to God, when we commit to God that which He has loaned to us, and we make that commitment of dedication, God will provide the needs, whatever those needs might be. Now let me give you a personal testimony. As I was working through this this week, now not always does God speak to me. I don't get always get a word from God, but I got a word from God this week. I was praying about this sermon and about your response to it and about our needs in First Baptist Church and the dreams that we've dreamed for this place. And while I was praying, it's a true story. I'm not, you know, it's not ministerial illustration. God said to me in my prayer time, He said, Gerald, I'm going to meet the needs of this church for all the dreams that are ahead when I can start with you. 
Now, when we were building this new building out here and we made all those pledges, Margaret and I made a pledge and we kept our pledge, we, 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 we sacrificed, really. That, that's the truth. But when the three years was up and our pledge time was through, we've just kind of done, you know, kind of given here and there when it's been available. Not, not, not my tithe. I'm a tither, and I'm a more than a tither, and I'm not ashamed to say that. Not boasting either. But as far as the offering or the giving to the, you know, we just kind of, when it's there, you know what I made God, what I promised God? I promised God that He could begin with me. That if He's waiting to bless and to meet the needs of this church, when I got ready to commit myself to Him in sacrificial commitment, He didn't have any longer to wait. And I was ready to do it. Now, I believe this morning that you can give your possessions to God and not give your life. But I don't believe that you can give your life to God and not give Him your possessions. And so the real question this morning is, have you really given your life to God? Supposing today were the last, your last day on earth, the last mile of the journey you'll trod. After all of your struggles, what are you worth? I mean, what can you take home to God? Don't count as possessions your silver and gold. Tomorrow you'll leave them behind. The only thing that we can have and hold are the blessings we've given to mankind. Just what have you done as you've journeyed along that's really and truly worthwhile? Do you feel you've done good and returned it for wrong? Can you look back over your life with a smile? The invitation I give this morning is the same invitation I gave in the early service. I hope you understand it. That the only authority and right that I have to stand here in any time, in any, any, at any, for any situation, under any circumstance, is to ask you to do what God wants you to do. To ask you this morning to commit your life to Him and let Him be first. That is, let the desire to seek the kingdom be first. After we've had prayer, we're going to have an invitation. Now, the invitation this morning is an invitation first for you to come and give your life to the Lord. Maybe you've never been saved. You know, as I, as I walked in here this morning, and I'm, I'm, I apologize for being that emotional. Some of you may have thought, well, what's the problem here? Uh, you know, I just thought as I walked in this place this morning that, that there's, there's so much more in life that's, you know, so much more important than this suit I've got on, these car that I drive, and the things that I use, play with. There's not a single daddy here this morning wouldn't give it up, every bit of it up for the health of his daughter. And I thought as I walked in here, how in the world can I help us all to see that the things in life that really matter are not things you can buy? That's so, so unimportant today. My invitation this morning is an invitation for us all to 
just to reevaluate, you know, our commitment to God. Where, where, what we've really held back and where we've really made a kind of a shallow attempt and indifference. And I, I just wonder if there's somebody here this morning who say, I want to I give my life to the Lord. I've never been saved. And I want to be. Or there might be some that say, you know, I, I, I want to join your church. This is the place God has led me to be. And I see the importance of it. And I want to be a vital part of what God's doing in this community. Or there might be just some that come and say, as, as I have said, and, you know, in the past, as I confess, God, I, I, I make a rededication to put you first in my possessions. After we've prayed, we'll invite you to come. Father, draw us near now to your great heart and help us to see with open eyes your will for us. And Lord, I pray that you will not allow us to be content with anything less than what you demand, what you desire. And God, I pray for young people and for adults who are just in the grips this morning of the reality of how precious it is just to live and to be a Christian, that we might really take a long look at where, where we are and our commitment and really understand that, that the Lord, that God, that you need to be, that you desire, you deserve to be first in everything, in every way. Bless this invitation, Lord, not that the preacher or anyone else could receive any kind of acclaim or success, but that your name would be glorified and your will be done. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now in a spirit of prayer, we'll ask you to stand and our choir will sing our invitation. We invite you to come.